Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the House of Pod. I am Kabe. I'm Lizzie. That was a little bit punchier than my normal intro. How'd you like it? It was pretty good. How are you doing, Kabe? I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> if this, for some reason, is the first time you've ever listened to this show, we're a medical humor adjacent type podcast where we have great guests. We um, talk about fun medical topics, some not so fun medical topics, and try to make them a little fun. And we take listener questions and all that sort of stuff. Um, we have great guests. And speaking I got, that of, was at the top of my introduction. Oh, shit. Oh, wait, sorry. Sometimes I just stop listening to you. Like, I, at least I, trust me. I know this. 80% of the time. No, um, Well, some of the things that are not fun to talk about, um, like way to introduce uh, colon cancer awareness. It's not March, but, you know, normally we talk about it in March to get your colonoscopy. But Chadwick Boseman is going to bring up yeah. the conversation a little we, we bit have, sooner. We have to have we have to talk about it. Um, so Chadwick Boseman, in case for some reason you don't know, in which case you probably don't know how to operate uh, a phone or a computer to listen to this podcast. But if for some reason you hadn't heard, Chadwick Boseman, otherwise known as the Black Panther, um, has died of uh, what sounds like a pretty aggressive metastatic colon cancer. He was very young. Um, he was in his early 40s uh, when he died. And he was probably diagnosed, it sounds like, in his late 30s, 39, I think, is what I heard. I mean, we don't know any of the real details about it. It's, so it's super sad. And it really did bum me out because he seemed like a really cool dude. And he seemed like a really thoughtful actor. And um, he's played some amazing, really iconic roles. But I think one of the reasons we really need to address it is because as soon as it happened uh, online, Everyone started saying, "Oh my God, we need! I need to get my colonoscopy now." Mm-hmm. Um, and some, in some cases, that's probably totally appropriate. And in some cases, it's like people in their thirties. Yeah. Um, 
And I think we do need to talk about it because it, we, it's good that it brings it to awareness. This topic is something that we as gastroenterologists talk about a lot. And we've talked yeah. about when should screening start in whom should we do early screening. Uh, and there is a ton of different task force out there. We won't belabor all these different groups, but there is everything from the United States Multi-Society Task Force with a super catchy USMSTF acronym. There's the, there's the American College of Gastroenterology. There's the American uh, Cancer Society, all these different groups. And so there's all these different recommendations. Um, and so there is a lot of, of different recommendations out there. But right now, we need to talk openly about when we should be doing it. Should we perhaps move it earlier? Well, I mean, we will talk about that. But as far as like um, his death triggering kind of inappropriate questions or inappropriate referrals is kind of what you were mentioning. But I also had like a 60 something year old guy email me, you know, this just reminds me I need my colonoscopy done. And I'm like, oh, that's a wonderful thing to at least get um, doctors, primary care docs are the ones who refer to us for the most part and patients and, and us to just have a little fire under your ass, literally and figuratively about getting your colonoscopy, if it's something to ask your doctor, is always a good reminder. Um, but yeah, he, I think he was diagnosed when he was 38 and he died when he was 43. And, you know, unfortunately there aren't um, great lessons to learn from his death other than to honor him as a good person, I, I think is what I've read so far. I don't know. I, I do think we should talk about early screening. And no, we should. Screening. I'm just, I don't want people to listen to this and think that, you know, if you're 38 that you need... No, that's, for sure. That's the I mean, point you're making. It, it, in his case, in this particular case with Chadwick Boseman, again, we don't know the details, but given how young he was, not even the most aggressive recommendations would have said to start screening at the right. age he was. We don't know his yeah. family history. We don't know his symptoms. Right. But yeah, the guidelines now officially say 50. Um, there are a couple of the guidelines. The American Cancer Society says consider starting 45. Yeah. But for black Americans, we say 45 as well. And that's actually been one of the recommendations for at least 10 years um, to start at age 45. And, and there's a couple of things I would add to that. So um, the, these are moving targets. For people who don't know, the, these are constantly being revised. People are working on them. There is new data that comes out and it changes our recommendations. That's again, how science works. So one of the things that we are seeing is that the rate of colon cancer is going up in younger people. I mean, the, the still the absolute risk of you getting it as a younger person under the age of 50 is still low, but it seems to be a little bit higher than it was. I mean, there's a lot of different theories about why that is, you know, um, we don't know yet why, but it does seem that those rates are going up. Um, and now it's almost it, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if in the coming years, the, the recommendations change for everybody, yeah. not just African-Americans to start earlier. But the important thing I also want to bring up is there are multiple ways of screening people that aren't just colonoscopy. And we should talk about that. Well, the, I mean, when we talk about um, screening tests, you know, and this is getting really into medicine for, for our listeners, it's about the risk of the test, right? So colonoscopy is an invasive test. And if it has zero risks, then we probably would drop that number even lower and lower probably over time. And the test probably is getting safer as time goes on and technology goes on. But yeah, there are many stool tests. Some <laughs> we don't know how often to do, but you have to ask your doctor, a stool test, nothing in your butt, no preparation, no invasive test, no camera, no colonoscopy, and their stool test, if you're wondering. 
But if you have symptoms, the problem is, is that really goes back to a scope in there. So that's what you have to talk to your doctor about if you're curious or worried. And, you know, maybe he had a rectal cancer. And if he had a sigmoidoscopy, which is a little bit less involved than a full colonoscopy, maybe it would have been found, you know? So we just don't know the details. Um, yeah. Who knows? He might know. have he might have had some family history or there might have been something else going on. But yeah, I, I think it is a good reminder for people who haven't undergone screening and are of the appropriate age to, to undergo screening. I think if you are interested in talking to your doctor about screening, I think it's a, it's always a good time to do that. Just remember, you know, there, there are recommendations out there and there's reasons we have those recommendations. We'll, we'll, I think, address it more in the coming days and weeks. And I think it's going to be a good opportunity for us as a country to have, as gastroenterologists, to have this discussion in the public setting. Yeah. Um, before we get into that, though, we have a great guest today. We have Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh, and she is a pathologist who's going to talk to us a little bit about racial disparities in, amongst other things, COVID. And I think we're going to touch a little bit on colon cancer screening as well. So stay tuned for a great guest. And welcome back. Today, we have the Associate Professor of Pathology and the Interim Chair of Rutgers Pathology Department, the author of multiple book chapters, giver of multiple international talks on pathology, Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, Will you tell our listeners who might not know what a pathologist does on a daily basis? So we do a ton of things. Um, It depends on whether or not you're an anatomic pathologist versus a clinical pathologist. So if you've ever had surgery or you've ever had a biopsy done, that's what anatomic pathologists look at. So we take the pieces of tissue that are taken out of your body after surgery, they come to our laboratory, and we cut the tissue down and put them into these little plastic cassettes. We put them in the machine overnight, we run all these chemicals over them, and then the next day they cut these thin sections and put them on glass slides, and then we, I hate to say we dye them with paint, but we essentially paint them with different types of ink, and you can actually see on the slides these beautiful shades of pink and purple. And that's how we diagnose diseases. We also look at cells from body fluids and we, look, we read the cells from pap smears. So we do all that as well on the anatomy side. And we can't forget my friends in autopsy who are probably the famous pathologists because they're the ones who are always on TV and testify at court and all that. Right, like CSI, yeah. You know, they're, they're totally CSI. And yeah. Some of my favorite residents ever have gone into forensic paths. So love them all, hugs and kisses. Um, and then we have the clinical. But I don't feel side. like you mean that. I, I feel like there's, is there some sort of like, uh, is there really a, a difference, a dichotomy in pathology between the different groups? Is <laughs> there's there like, like a, a, there's a hierarchy. Yeah. Do you like look at them like, oh, those are like the brainless jocks who go and they, they go and they do <laughs> the autopsies and we're the cerebral ones. Looking right. at the, like how, how we all think of uh, orthopedic surgeons. Ooh. Um, so for, honestly, for me, not at all. Like, I love everybody in pathology. I think we all have so much to offer. So I'm kind of like the kumbaya pathologist because like I love everybody, but there's just so much that they have to offer. And they're all so important that I'm totally cool with everybody. So you don't have the dumb jock of pathology. I don't think so. (laughs) You're being nice. I don't think so. Yeah. Maybe I'm too nice. Your uh, enthusiasm for your field is just adorable. Um, And, but let me ask, 
because I think a lot of our listeners probably wouldn't imagine making that choice. They, they wouldn't see it. So tell us why when you're in medical school, you, you make that decision. You're like, I'm going to be a pathologist. That's what I'm going to do. But what happened? What oh, was it? So my personal story is kind of sad, but I'll tell it anyway. So I originally wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Ha ha ha, dumb jocks. Um, <laughs> and which is really funny that you said like, the orthopedic surgeons are the dumb jocks of pathology. I'm like, I wanted to be an orthopod. And I actually wanted to do- Lizzie said that. Orthopedic. Lizzie said that. I don't want to get in trouble with any I, orthopods. I definitely said that. Me either. But I, I wanted to be an orthopedic oncologist. So I wanted to be the one who operated like on all the sarcomas and things. And I went on a bunch of interviews in my fourth year of medical school. And unfortunately, it didn't work out and I didn't match. But what was cool about my orthopedic oncology rotations was that I got to see the pathologist in action. So I was like, wow, this is really neat. Too bad I didn't know about this, but I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon now. And then I totally was an orthopedic surgeon. So. <laughs> That's so your I sad story. I, doubt, I thought it was going to be a tearjerker. Yeah, I was worried I mean, that like you like had <laughs> personal experience with like, some pathology yeah so that i'm glad that's how it happened right i thought um also i don't again our listeners might not know but orthopedic surgery is one of the most competitive fields because it's so lucrative um you know and it's not necessarily like sometimes it's a middle of the night field but it is really competitive so not getting in is probably much more common than getting in so (laughs) no I i mean probably but like i had the right step scores my grades were great um but everything happens for a reason. And I ended up exactly where I'm supposed to be. And it's kind of cool because now, you know, as a bone and soft tissue pathologist, I get to tell the orthopedic surgeons what to do. So it's kind of <laughs> fun. Yeah. Everything works out. So something you've talked about a lot, and I, we really wanted to discuss and bring up, is racial disparities in, in diseases in general. But particularly now in a time of COVID, it really does seem that it's all the things that were there from the beginning are, are being exacerbated. African-American, Latino populations, they seem to really be bearing a disproportionate burden of this disease. Like, for example, in Chicago, 50% of the cases, 70% of the, the deaths are African-Americans where they only make about 30% of the population. I think there's similar numbers in other settings like Louisiana. So I guess our first question for you about this is... Um, why do some populations seem to be more susceptible to this? What is happening? Uh, What's the reason for this? So unfortunately, I think a lot of it is socioeconomic. You know, unfortunately, a lot of our underrepresented minority communities, so Black communities, Latino communities, tend to live, uh, you know, poorer than majority communities. So it's harder on us. You know, we will live in a household that may have a lot more people in it because we can't afford to live in large houses with lots of rooms, you know, and lots of space. So you can't socially distance, Um, you know, depending on your level of education, you don't have the opportunity to have a job where you can telecommute, where you can stay at home if, you know, if things close down, you know, if you're stocking the shelves at Whole Foods and Whole Foods is still open, you have to go there. If you're working at McDonald's, McDonald's is still open, you have to go there. And so there's this exposure for our community to so much that we don't see in other communities because of where we have our jobs. And so if you can't socially distance, you live tightly at home, one person in your house gets COVID and we know like COVID, when it goes through a house, it goes through like wildfire. Next thing you know, a house with seven or eight people could have COVID. And when you're living in these families of different generations, so you may have grandparents, parents, children, all living in the same household, it makes it that much more difficult. 
you know, to be apart and to socially distance and everyone gets sick. And, you know, unfortunately, we're still not taking this seriously when we show up at the emergency room. You know, there was an interesting article in the New York Times in May where they'd spoken to different Black families and the, the stories were so similar. It's, you know, we went to the ER, we got, we had all the symptoms of COVID, our family member got checked out and they said, oh no, it's whatever and send them home and then they die at home. So, you know, Black patients, Latino, Latina patients have to be taken seriously. And folks have to understand that if I show up at the ER and I have symptoms of COVID, treat me like I have COVID, give me the test, you know, set me aside as a person under investigation and do the things for me that you would do for someone else who walks in with that same symptomatology. So it's really a multifactorial issue. So do you think that um, a person of color or perhaps an immigrant who goes to the ER and doesn't get taken seriously, and do you think it's, uh, like you're saying, it's multifactorial, that they, there's a health literacy issue and they're not advocating for themselves as much, for example, because they don't necessarily you know, don't know that they need to advocate for themselves? Or do you think that it's um, an issue where, you know, historically, we've talked about this on the show before, where doctors assume Black people in particular can handle more pain and that maybe their symptoms aren't as severe as, you know, the patient is describing? Like, do you think that there's a combination of these things? Do you think that there's one thing that's more prevalent or is it a trust situation? Well, you know, as a community, we've dealt with so much. You know, our bodies were experimented on, you know, for like with OB patients back in the 1800s. We had the Tuskegee experiments. So there's definitely a trust issue that takes us longer to even go see a doctor. Right. Because as a Black patient, you're afraid that you're not going to be believed or that you're going to be experimented on. So there is that. But there's also the fact that at times physicians don't believe us. I mean, as a Black physician, I've had people look at me kind of sideways, like, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. And check me out, please. You know, I can advocate loudly for myself and my family because I'm a physician, but not everyone has that in their family. So it's really difficult to find that person to speak for you when people don't believe you. Yeah. That concept of mistrust, particularly in the African-American community, I imagine must be deep and widespread for very good reason. You mentioned the Tuskegee syphilis study, which is a study that I don't think people realize this went up till 1972. I mean, that means that like people that trained us are people that were around, not necessarily during doing the study, but it wasn't that long ago where this sort of thing happened. I mean, it's very, and for people who don't know about that, the, the purpose of it was to basically they, they wanted to do a study to see what the natural history of syphilis was. So they, they withheld uh, penicillin when they knew it could cure, which is all kinds of unethical. And it, it's, it makes sense that there would be this generational mistrust. I guess the question I have is, you know, what can be done about that? You know, I think it's really important as we're educating the next group of physicians, as well as those of us who are already in practice, there are just things you have to talk about. We have to be anti-racist. We have to look at our patients as equals. Every patient who comes to see you has a right to get the most appropriate care they can get. And their candy shell really shouldn't dictate what treatment they get. And I think it's really, it's really essential as we're training, you know, the next generations of physicians the folks who are going to take care of me to ensure that they can look at me and take care of me as a human and not judge me because I'm a black woman. 
you know, you know, you talk about the candy shell. I like the way you put that too, because we've, we've discussed it before. It's important to note again, race is essentially a social construct. I mean, as far as I know, there's no like black gene. Um, so it's just, it, it is something that we in medicine have to work through. And Lizzie mentioned it. We covered that study that came out showing that African-Americans got less pain medication because there's this sort of underlying belief that they could handle more pain, which sounds crazy, but you know, um, it's actually been researched and studied. When, when it comes to that, when it, when it comes to what we've learned about genetic differences in patients with different diseases, as a pathologist, how much stock do you put in that? Do you think that there are some underlying genetic differences that could say, have create a different reaction to COVID? Do you think that is playing into this? Or is your belief that this is all because of the, these other issues that we talked about, lack of healthcare access, the, the, the health literacy, the mistrust, all these other issues, is that what's going on? So I'm gonna throw myself out there as the case in point. As a woman who works in multiple hospitals, who's been around COVID patients, who's been around COVID, and we were a hotspot in New Jersey back in March, April, May. It, I think it's much more socioeconomic than it is genetic. And yes, there are risk factors. You know, if you're obese, you have higher risk for more severe disease. If you have diabetes, you're more at risk for severe disease. And yes, we see a lot of that in, well, I'll look at my community, we see a lot of that in the Black community. But if you can socially distance, there's a good chance you won't get COVID. Yeah. If you can wear a mask and wash your hands, there's a good chance you won't get COVID. And so me, the <clears throat> slightly portly, but definitely black, not diabetic person has gone through now how many months of this pandemic through a hot spot time, and I still have not gotten COVID. And I've been tested three times with many more to go. Right. So a lot of this, I think, is socioeconomic. You know, when people can't afford to be away from each other and they have to go to work because the nature of their job forces them to go to work, they can't, how can you protect yourself? Yeah. Well, yeah. and you say, you say it's socioeconomic and we should take a step back because I, because that's also developed because of racism, right? Like that's where it comes from. I, it actually, I can't even believe people make the argument these days when they say things like it's not racism, it's so socioeconomic, it's class, but, but socioeconomic structure today is all because of a structure and a fundamental problem with racism in America, right? And it is a social construct, right? The, um, this book I read, Americana, recently, which is the best book of all time so far for me, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, whose name I can never say, she said specifically with the main character, says, you know, someone said, are you still blogging about being black? And she says, well, when I moved back to Nigeria, that wasn't relevant anymore. I was no longer black. You know what I mean? Because it is just like this American thing. So you represent, obviously, this intersectionality, right? Being a woman, being black. And I don't want you to like burn any bridges, but do you think maybe you didn't get into like orthopedic surgery because of some of these factors? Like, do you I think you don't I need to... to say, I wanted to ask. Yeah. That. That's, a, well, that's exactly that's what, what I wanted to ask. You mentioned you didn't get into it and that you had great scores. So you have to think about, I mean, everyone needs to like rethink their history, you know, like today in 2020 in America, you need to think, rethink, not you, like we all need to rethink these things, like the outcomes. Do you think that's a factor? So, oh, wow. Do it. Do it. Do so, Let it out. Let it out. When I, Let when, it out. When, when, when I applied to orthopedic surgery, which is nearly two decades ago now, 
because I may not look that old, but I am getting that old. Um, Never thought. I do. I do believe that may have been a factor. I, I will tell you that when I interviewed, the only other, t- the only time I saw black applicants was at my Howard interview. Mm-hmm. I did not see another black applicant at any of my other interviews, and that was seventeen other institutions. I mean, yeah, it's that's profound, but it's also I think orthopedic surgery of all, all the physical, you know, the medical fields look at women, you know, cause it's a really physically involved, um, surgery, right? You're hammering, you're, you're using your body more than probably a lot of other fields of medicine. So I also think that you would be easily dismissed for being a woman, you know? Well, I did play up my former jock status quite a bit because <laughs> I was a, I was a four-time letter winner in fencing at Rutgers. Whoa. Nice. Whoa. Was, it, was it lacrosse though? She said no, fencing. No, fencing. Fencing. Okay. Good, wait, good. wait, was it lacrosse? <laughs> the, the reason I, I say it's because we have an ongoing debate here about whether or not lacrosse is real sport. Jeez. Only oh because Lizzie plays it. I remember those tweets. That's me. So She's yes, in Jersey. Is a sport. Yes, Valerie's in Jersey. So of course she thinks that lacrosse is a real sport. It's easy. There's um, a lot of lacrosse in Jersey. Yeah, there's yeah. A, I mean, in the East Coast, there's a lot of lacrosse. Yeah. It is a sport. Yeah. You can get jacked playing lacrosse. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm, I do it to bother her. See, um, so uh, let, let me ask you, do you think that doctors are speaking up enough about racial inequity uh, in racial disparities in medical issues and beyond? Are we doing that enough? Should we more? I think a lot of people could be doing more. I think I think physicians of color tend to speak up because it's our experience, you know, we live it. And you can't, you can't ignore something that happens to you almost every single day. You know, I think that we need our allies to really be vocal because people don't always listen to us. I, I had quite the series of racist troll tweets come through my feed this morning based on a tweet that I had written about, you know, giving people a color seat at the table, actually listening so that we have real diversity and inclusion. And that was not taken well by some Mm -hmm. folks but what i'm finding is you know we definitely need more allies to speak up and speak strong and really declare that they're anti-racist because that's really it's an important thing to have so yeah in addition to speaking up though um like as far as being super constructive and deliberate about it would you say that um making doctors the medical field our medical student bodies just more diverse would be the the action the call to action, you know, we're talking about talking, of course, you need to speak up. And when you see something that's inappropriate, you need to call people out on bad behavior and bad language, um, even when it's really subtle. But as far as actions, um, do you think that that is the most meaningful thing just to be more diverse in our population? I mean, I think it's a meaningful thing, but in order to get there, we have to start early. I'm a big believer of what I call the pipeline. You know, and for me, particularly as a pathologist, because there are so few underrepresented minorities in our specialty, I'm a big believer in talking to very, very small humans about being a doctor, about being a pathologist. Because if you hear that when you're three, four, five, six years old, by the time you're 20 and thinking about medical school, you actually start to believe you can get there. Right. And I think it's super important to have our smallest, our smallest kids here over and over and over again over the course of their lives that yes you can be a doctor yes you can do this and oh hey look at me i'm doing it too 
Yeah. Because that way they believe they can. So by the time it's time to apply for medical school, they actually believe they can get in and they do get in. Yeah. And it's not a handout. It's not a gift, despite <laughs> what some people believe. Oh, their scores are lower. Actually, in a lot of cases, they are, they, the scores aren't lower. Right. The grades aren't lower. But people right. don't believe that because they just believe that it's a handout and we're all diversity. Yeah. People, the admissions. people define affirmative action poorly. It doesn't mean choosing a lesser candidate. It means choosing the same candidate, but trying to diversify. I mean, that's historically what it was supposed to be, but now it has this bad reputation. Can you, can you, I mean, I understand if you might not be comfortable, but can you give us an example in your medical career or before where you felt like not chosen or outside of your orthopedic um, application and um, dismissal? Is there something that you can highlight as your from your experience, that was a, a lesson that you could, our listeners would want to hear, or that was overtly racist or subtly. Honestly, I think the hardest thing for the world to understand is the subtle racism that racism that goes on every day. Well, it wasn't so much for something I wasn't chosen for, but just something that happened at work one day. And you know, my friends all laugh at me when I cover the autopsy service because it is my least favorite job in pathology. Sorry, mm-hmm. autopsy people, and I love you, but dumb jocks. You know, I just dumb jocks. You know, I, <laughs> they're totally not. I mean, some of my best friends are forensic people, so I don't. I don't want to give that impression. But so you know, I decided instead of taking the back stairs down to the morgue, and I have no idea why I didn't do it. I decided to walk out of the main doors of the department. So I'm walking down the hall and I get stopped by this lady with her trash in her hands. And I'm wearing scrubs at this point because I cannot get my nice clothes dirty when we're dealing with body parts. And the woman literally looks at me, hands her her bag and says, oh, can you take my garbage? And I'm looking around like, who is this woman? Take your garbage. Like, and I realized I'm the only person in the hallway. And I said, um, trash can's over there. And I just kept walking. And I'm like, this woman thought I was like part of the janitorial staff, which whatever, God bless them because they keep us, they keep our place clean and they have jobs, but it's like, I'm wearing scrubs. Our janitorial staff doesn't wear scrubs, not even close. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's Mm -hmm. like, all right. And so it's like, it's that microaggressive nonsense that you deal with on a daily basis. Yeah. And I've been asked if I, I've been asked if I was an affirmative action hire. You know, people ask you that. Yeah. Uh. Oh yeah. I, I've been I've been told that I could be someone's token by getting on like a particular committee wow. because they they need more diversity. It's do, stuff do, people say. Yeah, and I bet they're saying these things in ways that they have no idea are offensive. Like they probably think that they're paying compliments or something. They have no idea right. how offensive it is and how yeah. dumb it really is. Yeah. You don't have to look far to see. Uh, the, the racism that's still alive and well. You I mean you mentioned it on your Twitter page. I mean, uh, you uh, a quick a quick aside that I think might be related. Uh, Lizzie, do you know who Bubba Watson is? Yeah, the Bubba race Wallace? car driver. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, as far as I, is it Wallace or Bubba Watson? Bubba Wallace. Yeah. Wallace. Sorry, he's I don't know anything NASCAR. about racing. Yeah. But like, um, so he's like the only African American racer, right? I assume. I again, I've never watched a race in my life, but I he. Is a is a pretty famous guy, and, and there, he's been in the news recently. And um, you know, Dr. Fitzhugh here, she uh, basically reached out to him on Twitter, and they became like BFFs. And and now <laughs> I feel like one step closer to NASCAR Bubba. because of because <laughs> of you. But I mean, you saw just from that, that act of befriending him, like the 
the, the racist Twitter trolls come out and you saw the ugliness that's out there. It is, it's absurd, it's scary, and it's not all trolls, it's not all bots. It's like people who really believe it. These yeah. are like, there are people who really believe it. A lot of it's bots and that sort of thing, but there's a lot of real ugly hatred and racism alive yeah. and well in this yeah. country. Yes, if our listeners don't know, he helped advocate to get rid of the Confederate flag from NASCAR, and they did it. They were like the first like um, professional sporting team to like do something that aggressive and anti-racist, you know? I mean, you could argue that it's neutral because it's so racist that it's like removing it. (laughs) Is it (laughs) anti-racist? Right. But he advocated for that and he did, you know, a great job for someone who claimed to never have been political or politically active, you know, and he, he had that happen. So that's great. Now that you're friends with him, what's the scoop on Bubba? <laughs> yeah. Is he single? We're, we're Twitter. <laughs> no, he's not. Oh. <laughs> I mean, and, and I'm married with two kids. So. Oh, never mind. Although he is a There's got to be a Bubba clause. He's a very handsome man, though. He's a very handsome man. I will yeah. freely admit that. Yeah. Um, he's probably also slightly young enough to be my son, so that's right. a little awkward. <laughs> he's like but, 20, right? <laughs> he was thrown into the spotlight, and I don't think he intended. I think he... Um, he was, he was, he was literally thrown, right? I don't think that was his um, life's plan, for example. So this is something that happens to us very commonly as black people, because we tend to be the only. Right. You know, right now, he's the only black driver in the Cup Series. You know, there have been other black drivers in NASCAR, but it's not like you can count them on many fingers. And so, oh. you know, when, when you're the only there's a lot of expectation and there's expectation from your people. There's expectations from other people. So, you know, he's being held even as a racer, like he's supposed to be the super racer, at least in my opinion, and being held to a higher standard than some of the majority racers. And I don't think that's fair. Right. I love watching him compete. I love when he came onto the truck series in the early, I've been watching NASCAR truth be told since i was like 12 years old um, oh man wow that's like something goes, people do in new jersey is that wait, like a, a... wait you're admitting it's not that? really a jersey thing i, I am that i public. am admitting that okay i am admitting Just... i love cars okay. that's a conversation for a different day um why do you think that black people overall or black women are underrepresented in pathology do you think it's just um, do you think there's a reason for that or is that just because it's a smaller department and it's just kind of a numbers game so we, we are very underrepresented. Um, just like to throw out a number in all of our academic pathology departments across the country. So these are all pathology p- departments that are affiliated with a medical school. There are only 137 practicing black pathologists in academic, med- in academic departments. So when you look at those numbers, I think part of it is pathology for whatever reason is still not considered medicine. So when we have medical students come to the, come into school, depending on what school they go to, there's a chance they'll never meet a black pathologist. They won't mm-hmm. see. So if you have black students and you're trying to encourage them to enter the field and they see no one who looks like them, they're gonna be like, all right, I'm not, that's not gonna be on my top 10. Right. Like, it's just not gonna yeah. happen. Whereas, you know, at my medical schools, you know, students see me and they're like, you're the first black pathologist I've ever met. I mean, I've met attendings where I'm literally the first black pathologist they've ever met. And in some cases, the only black pathologist they've ever met because there's so few of us. So, you know, it's hard to get people excited about it, but I'm hoping that, you know, through my words, through my actions, through my teaching, maybe more people will get involved. Let me switch gears a little bit and 
and talk about Chadwick Boseman. Uh, and I, I know it's it's still fresh, and uh, it's been it was really sad actually. I'm not normally bothered that much by the death of you know celebrities. I don't really know, um, and not like I knew him in any way, but it, that it did hurt because one he was so young, and two it's a field that Lizzie and I you know have so much familiarity with colon cancer. And we talked a little bit about the increased rates in younger ages of colon cancer in African-Americans. Um, again, it's something that we don't seem to have a good grasp on is why. Is there some genetic component or is it this other stuff? Is it a lack of healthcare literacy, lack of healthcare access? Um, but it doesn't seem to be happening at a younger age. What silver linings, if anything, could come out of this? Well, for one thing, I think people are going to be much more conscious about colon cancer. You know, I'll tell you my personal story. This is how I, how I frame it and why I'm so broken over, over Chadwick. Because, you know, when I was a senior in college, my mother was 40 at the time, and she was diagnosed with colon cancer. We had no family history. And at that time, the screening guidelines were for 50-year-olds. So she was two years younger than the age that you would, you would have screened at. And at the time that she was diagnosed, she was, she was like Chadwick. She was already stage three colon cancer. So she had positive notes at the time of surgery. Um, you know, she had chemotherapy. She got better for a while. And then my first year of medical school, just before her 49th birthday, we found out that she had metastatic disease to her liver. Mm. So that was in May of my, of my first year. That was May of 2001. And she subsequently passed away in October of 2001. And having no family history, not having the benefit of being screened, obviously because she was too young. Um, and she did have symptoms, but she didn't pursue medical care for the symptoms until she saw a special on colon cancer on HBO. And she freaked mm -hmm. out because she had all the symptoms that they talked about in this special. And she oh. finally went to be seen. So... You know, I look at my mom, I look at somebody like Chadwick Boseman, the reality is, and I don't know his history because he was very private about it. I mean, when I saw that headline Friday night, I'm sitting next to my husband, and I just started sobbing. He's like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, what's mm -hmm. happening? And he's 43. And I was feeling almost survivor guilt because I had a scope two weeks ago because of my family history. So that was my second scope, actually. Mm -hmm. My first scope, I had a tubular villus adenoma, 1.1 centimeter tubular villus adenoma wow. at 39 years old. Yeah. yeah. And there's no way, and that's the thing, there's no way I would have been screened had my mother not gotten sick and died. Right. Yeah. And chances yeah. are, I would have then gone on to have colon cancer because who would have looked for it? Yeah. For, not, our listeners, not... for our listeners, that's a polyp that is considered precancerous and not one of the least, uh, you know, benign. It's, it's one of the more risky versions of these precancerous yeah. polyps. So. And it was just, and the thing is, like, it, it was kind of scary because, you know, at the time of the colonoscopy, I knew I had a big polyp. I knew it was removed, but then you're waiting for the diagnosis to so see. That's yeah. where the whole being a pathologist thing, because you're like, is there going to be high grade dysplasia, where where there's like big ugly cells that aren't invasive yet, so it's not cancer, but it's pretty darn close. So like, is there going to be high grade dysplasia? Is there going to be intramucosal adenocarcinoma, where there's mm -hmm. invasion into the lamina propria, but it's not deep? And so I'm freaking out. And literally the Friday before I go on vacation, so this is three years ago, I get the call from the office. Well, you need to come see us within the next two weeks. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Okay, look, I'm going on vacation today. I am not going to spend the next two weeks 
worrying about yeah. the diagnosis. I'm a pathologist. You need to tell me what this is. And yeah. so then they gave me all the information and I, I calmed down. There was no high grade dysplasia, thankfully. And, you know, they were able to remove the polyp intact. And so I had my last scope two weeks ago. Now my second one and thankfully no polyps at all. Nice. So, you know, that's the, you know, I always say my mother saved my life. Yeah. Because yeah. had she not gotten sick, had she not died, I would never have gotten screened. And so, you know, my thing is, you know, as a black patient, advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. If you have family history, make sure you're getting in and getting screened earlier than 45. So it's, it's super important. And my heart is broken for Chadwick Boseman's family. You know, I can't even imagine just watching what he did in that four years. Right. Yeah. He would never even thought he was sick. Like I was yeah. watching Black Panther last night through my tears and I was just, I was so moved. I'm like, look at him. He looked so healthy. Yeah. You would never have known. You never would have thought. Yeah. Um, young people can hide crazy stuff in their body, you know? I diagnosed colon cancer with people in their 20s. Yeah. So yeah. please, if you yeah. need to be screened, go be screened. Yeah. Um, one last one last question for you. Um, so we talk a lot about how we need vaccines and people I think are relying on vaccines pretty heavily uh, for the future of this country, essentially. But even when the vaccines come out, unless we get enough people to take them, um, we're going to have an issue developing herd immunity. And there in this country, there is already this anti-vaccine sentiment. And there's been a couple of reports that have come out showing that it looks like African-Americans are finding themselves less likely to want to take the vaccine. Now, these are early reports. Things may change pretty dramatically by the time the vaccines come out. But is that something you have seen or is that something you can explain? And if so, what can we do about it? You know, there's mistrust. People are afraid that they're basically going to be a guinea pig but uses a lab rat to test this vaccine. And what I would say is, we're not all going to be healthy. We're not all going to be able to leave our houses again and have some form of normalcy until these vaccines are approved. And we want it done the right way. So we need clinical trials. And things have changed. You know, there are institutional review boards who look at these things to make sure that people are being treated equitably that you know we're not using any one group of folks as guinea pigs so that we can get these vaccines into the community safely and effectively and you know i would say to my community as a black woman when that vaccine is available i'm open the door for me i want to mm-hmm. get it i yeah. want to get it i will get it for my kids i will i will make my husband get it he hates getting shots but it's okay <laughs> um you know because it's just so important the only way that we're going to be able to combat this disease any bit effectively, I think, is through the, the vaccine. Plus, people want to socially distance and wear masks for the rest of their lives. And people clearly aren't interested in that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really, it's really important that we understand that you know, this isn't an attack on communities of color. We need people of all kinds in order to effectively test the vaccine. You can't just have one group of people because you need to know how it will affect people across everything. Yeah. So I'm hoping that, you know, maybe if folks of color hear what I'm saying to believe that this is something really important, you know, if I can get to, if they accept me for the study, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. I think it's important for everyone to hear um, people of color and, and, and everything in between. Um, 
I personally just wish that like some of our institutions like the FDA and the CDC just had like, I just want to see the integrity maintained. I don't, I don't think it's gone yet. I'm just that, that for me. And I hope I worry for America, no matter what creed, class, money, anything, where you come from, I worry that's, um, that is eroding a little bit. So that would make very few people trust it if it comes out. So I'm sure more so in the um, black community, given the history of America. But um, thank you for saying that for now, we definitely all need to get our vaccines. Everyone, please start with the flu shot, which is I think now available. So just got mine today. Yeah, Kaveh's sore, he complained a lot. So Dr. (laughs) Fitzhugh, um, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, As we've discussed multiple times, the internet is a truly ghoulish place for ghoulish people to do ghoulish things. But every now and then you run across someone such as yourself, who uh, just really seems wonderful. And we really appreciate what you're doing, uh, that you're representing pathologists in general. Don't get enough attention, these guys. And so we appreciate that you're doing that and that you came on the show to talk to us and let us ask you a bunch of questions. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was fun. I mean, I am devastatingly handsome and Lizzie is sort of intimidating and gross. But this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.